What's up, Gumbo listeners? Demetrius Malbro here with another Data Protection Gumbo episode titled Peeling Back the Covers of Kubernetes Data Protection. And to drop these spicy ingredients, I have Kelsey Hightower on the show. And he is a staff developer advocate for Google Cloud Platform. And Kelsey is a strong open source advocate focused on building simple tools that make people smile. And today, Gumbo listeners, Kelsey will be elegantly pulling back the covers of Kubernetes data protection, why Kubernetes is so hot, and so much more when we get back from thanking our sponsors. Gumbo listeners, this episode is brought to you in part by OS Nexus is an industry leader in software-defined storage, helping you maximize storage platforms like Ceph and OpenZFS. Choose the easy way to manage your storage and reduce cost with less effort. Go to osnexus.com slash try now and mention Data Protection Gumbo to get an expanded community edition license now. Haiku is an industry leader in multi-cloud data protection, helping you migrate, protect, and recover data for on-premises and in the cloud. Try Haiku Data Protection Service, which is purpose-built for Google Cloud Platform, free for 14 days. Go to haiku.com gumbo to get your free one terabyte of GCP backup for a year. What's going on, Kelsey? How are you today? Yo, I'm happy to be here. All right, so let's let's jump right into the show, um, Kelsey. You you've been very successful in your career, and there are a lot of gumbo listeners that are out of work right now. So I'm talking backup and storage administrators that have about ten, fifteen plus years of experience. That they're they're kind of frustrated and afraid right now that the market has somewhat passed them by, and especially due to COVID nineteen. So, what advice do you have for them? And what was the crossroads in your own career that changed your trajectory? Yeah, I have a lot of empathy, right? Like, you know, these are real people's lives. People work to earn money to provide for families. So, you know, it's make sure that, you know, we know this is a super important thing. Uh, in the tech business, as many people know, things evolve, but they evolve at different pace for different people, right? So if you're at a particular company who just bought Tivoli backup package from IBM and they're going to do backups for the first time, then those skills are going to be hot in demand, right? Backups, you know, taking snapshots and yeah. doing partial backups. But then there's also another set of people who have been using tools like Google Cloud Storage and Amazon S3 where you don't really talk about backups in the same way. The data is replicated globally. You have 11 nines of reliability. It seems like there's infinite storage. If you need 100 petabytes, no problem you know, pay for what you use. And it's a very different mentality in terms of thinking about how data is backup archived, right? You don't call Iron Mountain inside of the, the cloud world. It's kind of like just keep adding more storage. So I think that touches upon when you look at your skill set, even though you may be at a current situation where your skill set is super valuable, nothing's wrong with that. You should take pride in that. Mm -hmm. But you also got to keep a lookout on the landscape that even though your current situation doesn't call for a set of skills, you know, most professionals that want to stay relevant, regardless of what happens to them, you try to keep your eye out. And if that means learning on your own time, you try to do that. So that way you can actually have a little bit more control over those outcomes. And some things are out of our control, like COVID-19 and so forth. But right. even, I guess, when things are relatively normal, it's always good to have skills and you decide how you want to leverage them. 
Yeah, I, I really love that advice that you gave. I run a, a LinkedIn group, Backup and Recovery Professionals, and there are over 20,000 professionals. And often I receive uh, direct messages from some of the members asking for connections to people in my network around you know, storage companies, backup companies that they're looking for work and they're frustrated. So that's, that's great advice right now. So let's, uh, since we're on the gumbo, I, I like to kind of jump around a little bit, Kelsey. So just, just to warn you up front, I want to switch over to a, a study that was done by VMware. It says over the next three years that the number of container instances worldwide is expected to grow about six times to 1.6 billion containers. And over 70% of enterprises are expected to embrace Kubernetes. And I am an old school backup admin. So from, from the late 90s, just to break it down for me, can you tell me, I guess, exactly why is Kubernetes so hot? And what does this mean for protecting all of that data within or managed by containers? So I think one way, so I'm going to try to use some, maybe some examples from the storage world to help people kind of understand what we're talking about here. Uh, and remember, I've never been a storage admin, but of course, just like everyone else in our field, I've definitely used my fair share of storage. In the storage world, when I kind of started into tech, you know, especially working inside of data centers, I remember the holy grail was like RAID 5. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You get yeah. multiple spinning disks, RAID 5 with the battery backup. You configure that for performance. And you just did all of this stuff to hyper-optimize that server. And then maybe 25 servers show up. And eventually you're like, yo, this ain't gonna work. We can't keep trying to keep all these RAID controllers patching firmware on each and every single server. And then the other problem with direct attached storage in that way is if that machine were to die for some other issue, whether it's a motherboard, I've been in those situations where you gotta go unrack that server, mm -hmm. put it on the workbench, pull out those drives, and you better hope you have another RAID controller that you can attach to with the same firmware version to recover that data. Right. And eventually we start to get to a point where either you're running multiple servers. And then I remember when network attached storage came out, at least for my world. Mm -hmm. And I remember it was like, okay, you got things like iSCSI helping us replicate a very similar set of protocols that we had on the attached store so we didn't have to change our code. You know, you could basically mount a disk over iSCSI and basically keep the same Linux or Unix-like interface that you had before. But for a lot of people in the storage profession, what it allowed them to do was centrally manage the storage, right? Mm -hmm. So now I can aggregate, because one big problem I remember back then was, I go give you a terabyte of attached storage, expensive at that time, yeah. and you're only using 100 megabytes. I'm done. Mm -hmm. That's just gone, the whole business. And then it's, then it's replicated under some RAID config, and I'm just wasting money because, you know, I'm not getting full value. So when the world came to network attached storage, not just that you had more flexibility, but now I could centrally manage my pool of expensive storage. I can also tier it, you know, maybe you get SSDs for this storage, then I can get you spinning rust for this layer. But it, it changed the way you thought about storage. Now it's the thing where you tell me what server, I'll carve out a LUN, and you can just attach what you need. So let's start with 100 gigs, because that seems to be what your estimate is. Don't worry, we can online grow the volume and not have to direct the server. And that's like, whoa, now we start to get a lot of flexibility with something that was almost impossible to do before. So let's fast forward to Kubernetes. Okay. The same evolution happened, right? So in the original server world, you know, people are writing bash scripts or even doing it manually. 
where you're just copying your binaries and you're just dropping them on servers. Right. And then you had to have all of this localized managed. You got to go on the server, like managing those RAID cards, right? You got to get on the box mm-hmm. and run this tool. And it was just like, man, it's just not a good way to manage storage at scale. We took everything we learned from the storage world and we centralized in those new control planes. So when you look at the server world and how we were doing software with binaries, so instead of storage, their applications is our unit of compute that we're dealing with. And we have to map those units of compute to those machines and doing it one machine at a time, it just doesn't really work out. So imagine when you start to have a growth in number of machines, you also have an appetite for high availability, just like RAID brought to us. Mm-hmm. Then you start to develop patterns, right? Different companies say, hey, I've written an automation tool that lets me copy this app to 100 servers in the same amount of time that I was doing with one. Mm. And then what you start to do, you start to centralize those tools, call it configuration management, Puppet, Chef, Ansible. Yeah, right. Right? And and now we kind of moved into some patterns. So let's take 20 years of those patterns and think about all the things you would do. If a machine were to die, you move the app to another node. If you need a, a load balancer, you take the IP of the app and you configure the load balancer. Now we've automated all of that into a new control plane, just like the NetApp did for storage. Mm-hmm. Kubernetes does for compute. It's a centralized control plane that allows us to centrally configure, manage, and automate all the concerns around applications. That's all fantastic. And I think this is a, a perfect time to segue to some of the concerns around, like, I've heard some serious security issues um, dealing with like the container environments and misconfigurations and, you know, their organizations experiencing different types of like runtime security incidents. And they are like running into really significant vulnerabilities that that they have to remediate. So can you give, I guess, the gumbo listeners some best practices and practical recommendations that, that may help them secure their cloud native infrastructure and, and applications? The truth is none of these are new. Hmm. Most people didn't deal with them because if you were in the world where you're putting one app per server, Mm -hmm. then you never had to deal with the challenges of sharing multiple apps on a single server. Mm. That's been here for 30, 40 years, though. If you were in a world where you were putting two apps on a single server, it's the exact same problems. Now, where things got more challenging is because some people believed that containers would make that problem go away. And maybe that's part of the industry's, you know, the hype and how it was pitched, how it's marketed. So people looked at it and says, oh, I'm just going to use containers. And now I've got VM quality isolation. That's not, that wasn't 100% true. Now, the truth is, it's probably better than not using containers and just taking two binaries and putting them on the same server and saying, good luck. Mm-hmm. Now containers are bringing a net win. So no matter how you look at it, you're going to get a net win, but it doesn't mean that there is no security challenges there. So I think that's really where it comes down to that most people never had to exercise security at that layer because they did a different approach. They went with, you know, hardware isolation. You get a server, I get a server. Then some people did it with virtualization. So here's the interesting thing. Even people on virtualization periodically get a CVE saying, wow, one VM can compromise another Mm -hmm. because you're sharing the same host, right? right? And then you have to patch. So it's not infallible. The VMs are. It's just that it's been almost 20 years. We've seen a lot of vulnerabilities. They've been patched. And we we 
as we learn or we experience security problems, we just get patches. Containers in the current form, are, we're talking about five years here. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's going to take a little bit of time. And the last thing I'm going to end with, for a lot of people, you do have the options of running your containers, right? Because if you think about what a container is, and this, this is probably the other important part, for the most part, the container can be thought of as two things. One, it can be thought of as packaging, right? Mm -hmm. I'm just going to package my app differently, meaning instead of taking a Java jar file or an EXE in the Windows world, I'm just going to put that into a new packaging format that allows me to move it around in a standard way, right? So it right. doesn't really change what the app is inside, but it does change the container so we can automate its distribution. The second part is the container runtime. And this is the part where people don't understand your implementation can be optional. You can take a container mm -hmm. image and stick with what you know best, stick with what you trust, and just put one container per virtual machine if that's your level of comfort. If, if you want to share a single machine, just like your hypervisor shares a single bare metal machine with multiple VMs, you have a few different implementations. You could go with the standard Docker, and that's going to get you stuff that's found in the Linux kernel. Most people would say that's probably not good enough. If you're ever sharing a Linux kernel, then any bug security related in the Linux kernel is going to be an attack vector, right? Just a range of risk. Right, yeah. The things you can do to mitigate that is use tools like GVisor, Firecracker. These are two different approaches. Firecracker is going to be more like a miniature VM. Mm-hmm. So it's going to try to leverage VM-level technologies to isolate you in a way that you were doing with your virtual machines. And then the second approach is more of a emulation. So instead of your applications talking to the kernel directly, running the risk of hitting bugs, you're going to have a different layer running in user space that your apps will then say, if I want to open a file, instead of talking to the kernel directly, they'll talk to this other app, GVirus is one of them, that will mm -hmm. intercept that call and make sure you're calling that system call safely. And you just kind of have this proxy. So you have choices and you're gonna have to think critically about what level of security you need for your workloads. Wow, so I, I really like the name Firecracker. I'm, I'm sure the, the marketing team was like on their toes when they, when they came up with that name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, and so just, Kind of switching back to the the primary theme of data protection gumbo. So Kelsey, there are a, a lot of new companies out there that are focusing on backing up and protecting Kubernetes data. Are, are you familiar with any of them? And if so, what advice would you give them around protecting Kubernetes data the best way? This one's tricky. Okay. This is tricky because it depends on where you're coming from. And I want to be, yep. I have empathy for everybody where they are, right? If you're in full manual mode and you're used to a set of tools, mm -hmm. it would be nice to have your tool supported in this environment. If you start in fresh and you don't really have a lot of those existing investments, okay. you may want to take a different approach. So I just want to caveat with that. <laughs> yeah. Now, remember, Kubernetes is just Linux, folks. We're not getting a new operating system. You're not writing in a new programming language. You are, are not really doing anything different. For example, when we went from spinning disk to SSDs, that really didn't change the file system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, You're still using EXT4 or ZFS. It's, it, you know what I mean? The, the thing underneath might be different and faster and maybe 
you know, you might have some other things you can do in terms of like how RAID is implemented, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're still talking about the same file systems, but the thing underneath kind of changed. So when I think about Kubernetes, you have to ask yourself, Kubernetes helps me take my app and leverage some industry standards and ideas to distribute those apps and keep them running. There's a lot that goes into that. Mm -hmm. But it's still Linux. So when I look at the existing vendors, and you've probably seen this, right? You're like, you know <laughs> yeah. what? This vendor I've been using for 15 years, and then yesterday, you know what they told me? They told me they was doing cloud-native storage. Yeah. I'm like, what? This the same product. All y'all did was change the name. And then you ask the vendor, what makes this same thing now cloud-native? And they say something like, we got support for Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. And you just put your head in your desk and you'd be like, I, I don't see the connection. So let me try to break it down for folks. Mm. If you're using MySQL, MySQL was not designed to be cloud native and there is nothing wrong with that. And actually cloud native don't really mean anything. I asked Kubernetes to put MySQL on this Linux server for me. I could have did it myself through my old tools. Mm-hmm. Don't matter. MySQL is now running on a Linux, and now Kubernetes is, for the most part, technically out of the way. Okay. I chose that I need a terabyte volume, and we use a NetApp. Now, one thing I can do is just SSH to the host that Kubernetes is managing and mount the storage myself. And if I mount the storage by hand, I can just mount the path, like slash data, into the container. I can say, hey, Kubernetes, don't touch my storage. I'm going to take care of that myself. I just want you to run the app over there. And then essentially, I want you to mount in this data volume. Don't worry what's underneath that volume. It could be local storage. It could be NetApp. Don't matter to you, Kubernetes. It's just a file path, right? Yeah, right. So in that scenario, you already know what's going on. Mm -hmm. So if I asked you in that scenario, how would you back it up? You said, well, we use a NetApp. We're going to do the snapshot on the NetApp. We don't need to run no tools on the server. That's the point of using the NetApp. Now, if it was a local SSD, then you're right. I'm going to have to run an agent on the machine because that's the source of the data. And then that agent may then use the various backup techniques to stream that data somewhere else. You already know what to do, right? So now let's get into what makes it cloud native. Mm -hmm. Well, Kubernetes does have an API to create, attach, and destroy volumes. So if I take my 10-year-old NetApp, and let's say they added support for Kubernetes, then I might get a plugin that says, now instead of me mounting things manually or going to the NetApp to carve up storage, I can just tell Kubernetes, say, hey, Kubernetes, I want you to run my SQL, but if there's no volume there, go ahead and create one about this size and mount it to the container. And all it's going to do is just automate that calling the NetApp APIs. Does that make it cloud-native? Look, if that's the word that makes the distinction clear, cool. Mm. But that's really what's going on. Man, it's um, it, it's really good to hear someone, you know, break it down and just, you know, make it like layman's terms. So I, I appreciate that response. So we talked a little bit about backup. So so what about recovery? So I, I also know that you can ensure high availability for your applications, you know, running on Kubernetes by running, let's say, multiple replicas or pods of that application. But sooner rather than later, you're going to need to set up a backup. So it, it's cool to backup, but the money is is definitely in the recovery, right? So what would you recommend to the Gumbo listeners that 
are maybe new to Kubernetes about, let's say, disaster recovery and, and maybe some tips that will, you know, make it easier to, to restore services? I want everybody listening because I'm not a storage person, right? I, like I said, I know a little bit. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I want y'all to have a little bit more confidence in your skill sets. You already know the same fundamentals that everybody else is leveraging. Yes, they are assigning different names to it. Yes, they're calling it cloud native. But when you peel back the covers, it's fundamentally the same. So let's just talk about backups and recovery. Okay. Now, there are a lot of databases that are saying that's a dangerous proposition. If you think you can snapshot every minute, every hour, then you're leaving a window open for data loss. Mm. Right? Because if you're going to traditional backup fundamentals, you might say, yo, we're going to snapshot every 10 minutes. Yeah. But what if I'm getting a million transactions per second? If we do the math, my company may lose billions of transactions because we got to restore from some backup. Okay. So then what do we do in the storage world? We said, okay, what we're going to have to do now is we're going to add in replication. Right, yeah. Because we can't just do. So now you start to say, all right, we're going to add in a follower Mm -hmm. to the database leader because we want to reduce the mean time to recovery. So we're still going to do the backups, but what we're going to try to rely more on, and the backup in this case is more of a, I mean, we just lose everything. At least we got something. So we said, let's get to something that's more online, something that's a little bit more real time. So then replication enters the story. So now people say, all right, I got, the, I got the leader, I got the follower, and now I'm just basically duplicating my data. I'm willing to pay that cost for high availability at the data layer. And at that point, you start to say, okay, now I, I might have two of the followers, so now I have some redundancy there. So that means I'm hot. I can just kind of switch between those two and keep going what I am with the data, right? So then mm-hmm. I might be able to go from 10-minute snapshots down to a few seconds based on how your replication is set up, right? So now that's my window. My window is how fast can I replicate? And some database technologies do a good job like uh, CockroachDB or CloudSpanner. They call these new SQL. What they do is they'll replicate to like two or three other hosts before they consider that the write is complete, right? So now you have more of that RAID-like experience at the application layer. That's pretty dope. Yeah. And then what you do is say, okay, backups are just that. They're emergency only, but we're going to rely more and more on replication than backups and restores. So you have to look at it. So if you're in the traditional sense, whether you're using cloud native tools or not, everything is the same. So if if my company is using MySQL and we're not using online replication, then yeah, you're right. I'm going to just do my same backup and restore. So now let's talk about how do you do your backup and restore. Right. And everybody try to make this confusing again. They're like, oh, using Kubernetes. So let me find a Kubernetes backup and restore. Yeah. Remember what I just said? It's a Linux server. Yep. I can easily say, you can actually do this for real. You can say, hey, Kubernetes, I've earmarked these two nodes in my 100-node cluster, and these two nodes are only for the database, just like we do in real life, right? You don't just say anything can run on the database servers. Yeah. No, you say these are for the database, and they're going to need all their disk I.O., network I.O., to deal with the data. And we don't care if we over-provision because this is one of the services that can't go down. You can say, hey, Kubernetes, I want you to put the database only on those two servers. And then here's what I'm going to do to leverage my existing skill set and my existing tools. Mm -hmm. Kubernetes, you can manage deploying 
MySQL to the server. You can have that. It can be in a container. I don't care. It's going to be the same binary if I would have did yum install or app get install. That's going to be the same. But if you really want to do that part with Kubernetes, y'all knock yourself out. Now, what I'm going to do as a professional administrator on the data side, I'm going to install the same backup agent. It's Linux. I might not install the backup agent via Kubernetes. Maybe I don't see any value of putting my backup agent in a container and then configuring it how to backup. Maybe I just say, you know what? We just going to put the backup agent on the machine, just like we put Docker on the machine, mm -hmm. just like we put the logging agent on the machine and sometimes not through Kubernetes. You can still do that. So I would recommend to people, if you're using those traditional tools, there is a compromise. There is a middle ground where you can still go and prep that server to host a data service, use your existing tools. And the last thing I'm going to say here is, let's say you are now looking to go to Kubernetes. And I think a lot of the storage vendors yeah. are moving people forward by saying, we're going to make sure that we certify those tools to be packaged in a container. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to give you a Kubernetes configuration that says, I can also run on that same server where Kubernetes is putting MySQL. And I will figure out how to mount the same storage volume that the other container is. And then I'm just going to keep doing what I was doing before, except for I'm just going to make sure that I can do that in a slightly different environment, but it ain't drastically different. Ah, uh, yeah, got it. Yeah, I, I appreciate that answer as well. And so I, I only have maybe one or two more questions for you. And just in doing some of the research here, I, of course, was on, on your Twitter page. And uh, I saw uh, a tweet about, I guess the GCP team is working on proxyless gRPC. I, I saw a little bit of your demo. So I, I guess I'll give you an opportunity maybe to, to do a little plug here real quick, if you don't mind. Yeah, so we're always learning and evolving in the open source world, in the cloud world. So that particular thing you're referring to, proxyless gRPC, maybe it makes a little sense to explain what a proxy is. Um, you know, most people are very experienced with like load balancers, Nginx, HAProxy, ELB, F5. And the nice thing about those tools, you kind of put them on the edge of your network and maybe have like 25 VMs and you put all 25 IPs into the load balancer and you spread traffic around. Great. Mm -hmm. One thing we is we've taken some of those patterns and we moved a lot of that closer to the app. And in order to do it, was, hey, let's just make a, you know, there's a new kind of load balancer out called Envoy, which is very popular in this space, and it's a proxy. So what that means is if you write in Java or .NET or whatever your language is, you would basically pair up your app with this additional sidecar. So you got this additional binary that's costing more memory, more CPU, and another thing to manage. But the nice thing about it, though, is no matter what language you're using, that sidecar binary handling those responsibilities of doing things like advanced routing, rate limiting, all those things you got to do at the application layer, we can move that into this little application container, if you will, but it's really a proxy. So that works for to some degree. But imagine a world where it's like, wow, I got to go from my app to this proxy, out the proxy, to another proxy, to the other app. Those extra hops, you might say, hey, look, Maybe it isn't terribly slow, but if I'm in the gaming industry, voice over IP where people can hear any stutter while they're talking on the phone, you may say, hey, there's got to be a way to reduce some of those hops. So it's not that it's terrible. So what I talked about in that talk is we're now moving to a way where we can start to take 
a lot of those patterns and move them back into the app in the form of a library, hence the name proxy lists. Mm. Right? We're going to take the proxy away. Right. We're going to move the functionality into the app. And that would be akin to like a database learning how to do its own backups without an agent. You know what I mean? Like that'd be pretty cool if like, man, we're using this database and it, and it has a config that says it can back up its own stuff to our backup tools. That'd be dope, right? I don't even got to put no agent. I can just say, here's my backup policy. And inside the app, it yeah. does its own backups. Oh yeah. man, that's yeah. dope. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I really like that. So um, Gumbo listeners, you you actually heard it here first. Uh, so just a little bit about uh, Proxylist and uh, gRPC. Uh, just rolling into the closing Gumbo question and Kelsey, just to explain this question. It's, it's actually a new one that I, I came up with um, jogging the other morning because I got a little tired of the other question that I was asking. And this one is more relevant to the times that we're living in right now. So what makes you frustrated or angry enough that you would consider standing in front of a data center and protesting about it until there's change? Mm. Mm. It's a good one. That's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, a lot of times we protest things that aren't working for us. Mm -hmm. You know, for some people, that data center may be perfect, all they need and more, and they won't see the need to protest. Now, if I see the data center as a prison, meaning I need to run my business globally and I can't do that with a single data center in the middle of the United States that doesn't have enough power to do the things I want to do. And at some point, that data center is now negatively affecting me. Mm, If that, you know what I mean? If that data center starts having random power issues, I can't even get stable power because I used to work in a data center and fluctuation in power can hurt electronic equipment. Mm -hmm. Cooling issues, right? So when when the data center as a tool and its design purpose was to house and run my compute, when it doesn't do that is when it starts to hurt me. So let's imagine that this data center was in charge of, you know, determining the health of society and mm-hmm. any downtime means people die. And wow. if, if people try to keep that thing running because that's the way they've always done it, mm-hmm. that's what we're used to. We don't have time to learn anything else, so this is what we're going to have to live with. And that's when people start to have to protest and say, look, y- y'all not listening. The people who work yeah. inside of this data center, you're not understanding that this data center is no longer serving its design purpose. Maybe you promise an SLA of five, nine uptime, and I'm showing you the data that I'm only getting one nine or I'm getting five fives. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. We're not we're not where we need to be with it. And I'm telling you there is a better way. I'm telling you mm-hmm. that maybe it's Equinix or maybe it's Amazon, maybe it's Google Cloud. But there's definitely yeah. a better way. So now I'm gonna protest because there is no more excuses for why we in this situation. And that's where I think, and I say it all the time with companies, right? They feel trapped. They feel like they can't do any better than what they got. And they want to just kind of replicate what they got. They want to lift and shift as is. Mm -hmm. And that's where I just kind of feel like once it really starts to become a hindrance to you as a business, a hindrance to you as your customer, and depending on what industry you're in, a hindrance to society, then that's something that will get me out in protest. 
Okay, that is loud and clear. And Kelsey, I truly appreciate you taking time out of your day to come on Data Protection Gumbo and speak to the listeners a little bit about Kubernetes and backup and recovery. So thank you again for coming on the show and you have a fantastic day, Kelsey. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. I love reading your reviews on Apple Podcasts, so please keep them coming. And every review that you leave helps. So please also join our LinkedIn group, Backup and Recovery Professionals, and also check out our website at dataprotectiongumbo.com. So have a great week and see you next time.